and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about Israel, cybersecurity and cyber threats, as this area is a very popular topic, especially nowadays. Today my guest is Professor Chuck Freilich. Hello, Chuck. Hello, Martin. Good to be with you. Chuck Fallig was a Deputy National Security Advisor in Israel and a longtime senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He now teaches political science at New York University, Columbia and Tel Aviv Universities. Professor Freilich is author of three books. The first one is uh, Zion's Dilemmas, How Israel Makes National Security Policy. The second one is Israel National Security, a new strategy for an era of change. And the latest one, and one of my favorite, is Israel and the Cyber Threat, how the startup nation became a global cyber power. Professor Freilich was a senior analyst at the Israeli Ministry of Defense, policy advisor to a cabinet minister, and a delegate at the Israeli mission to the United Nations. He has appeared as a commentator for ABC, NBC, CNN, NPR, Al Jazeera, and various US, Israeli, and foreign radio and TV stations. He has been quoted in the New York Times, Washington Post, and other media and published numerous articles basically about the Middle Eastern issues. He is also a senior fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv and the Miriam Institute, where he runs a successful podcast, which I fully recommend. I divided this interview into several sections. So we're going to start about first one, which is how to understand the cybersecurity and cyber threat landscape in Israel nowadays. So how would you characterize this, Chuck? Well, it's a threat-fraught landscape. Israel is one of the countries that is under more cyber attacks than most others. And uh, there are a number of primary actors involved in this. First and foremost, Iran and its Hezbollah proxy, uh, Hamas, and the, a little bit the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And then there are global actors uh, involved, whether it's um, Russia, China, um, various hacktivist groups around the world. and. Uh, individuals, but it's predominantly Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, in that order. Hmm. And when you when we think about Israel and cybersecurity evolution, in the last 10 years, how would you describe, you know, what's changing? What is accelerating? Was this a bit stable? You know, how, how, how are the issues? Well, I think what's happened is there's been a tremendous change in the last decade. Iran really only started developing its cyber capabilities around 2010. That was in response to two primary developments. One was the mass demonstrations in Iran the year before in 2009, in response to the uh, presidential elections that year, in which the regime through the elections to their preferred uh, candidate. And that led to these mass demonstrations, which were uh, conducted and promoted through and prolonged through social media and uh, the internet. And the regime was shocked by uh, the success. And that was one reason that it then got involved, mostly for uh, domestic security reasons. 
The other thing was the uh, so-called Stuxnet attack in 2010, a cyber attack which was attributed both to the US and Israel as a joint operation, which attacked the Iranian uh, nuclear program, uh, the, the centrifuges at their Natanz facility and caused considerable uh, damage. It set the program back by about a year. To this day, that's considered uh, the bellwether cyber attack. Uh, that's what got them going. And so they started from a low place, but have um, improved very rapidly in this decade. Today, they are believed to be at the top of the second tier of cyber actors in the world. Uh, so that's one big change in Iran's capabilities. And together with them, Hezbollah and Hamas, because Hezbollah is basically saying the same thing as Iran. And there's been a fair amount of assistance from Iran to Hamas. We also see Israel being uh, the victim of uh, or the target of attacks from around the world, from uh, various uh, actors. And uh, there are lots of intelligence related attacks. but. One of the areas that Israel's particularly concerned about today, and so far has not been a major, uh, certainly not a, a victim, maybe there have been att attempts, but is information-related uh, cyber attacks, information operations. Uh, that's certainly stepping up a great deal. Right, and can you, can you tell us, for instance, an example of a major cyber attack on Israel, and what sort of implications did it have? How about I give you three quick examples? Okay. One is um, two years ago, there was an attack, an Iranian attack on Israel's water system, which was thwarted. And so no actual damage was caused. Had it not been caught, the attackers would have been able to release um, potentially lethal quantities of chlorine into the national water supply. Just for us viewers and students, do you mean drinking water or do you mean something like a lake in Israel or, or what exactly is the water attack? Well, into the, I mean, it's one closed system in Israel, uh -huh. but uh, yes, drinking water for residential use, uh, water for commercial uses, uses. Uh, they attack various controllers uh, that um, control the system, the flow of water, and sewage treatment plants. I see. Okay. So that was one attack. Uh, that's in the disruptive slash disruptive uh, character um, domain. A second attack was against an Israeli insurance company, a private company, which just by chance, or maybe very much uh, not by chance, happens to provide insurance to most of the defense, or to at least a large part of the defense establishment, uh, particularly the intelligence agencies. And this company did not live, uh, live up to its uh, legal commitments in terms of uh, information security. And the attackers dumped the names of a very large number of officials from the different uh, agencies, the intelligence agencies, their names, their home addresses, their email addresses, uh, their ID numbers, their car license plate numbers, their health records. Uh, this was a potential, their, uh, their phone numbers. This was a potential intelligence bonanza for Israel's adversary. 
And the third attack is more in the information realm. A few years ago, uh, there was a report that uh, Israel's defense minister at the time, Mr. Yehilon, had threatened Pakistan uh, that if they sent forces to uh, fight ISIS in Syria, Israel would respond, uh, destroy those forces using nuclear weapons. Now, unsurprisingly, the Pakistanis were very unhappy with this, and they responded with a nuclear threat of their own. And the Israeli Ministry of Defense was uh, flabbergasted, and nobody wanted a nuclear escalation uh, with Pakistan, and of course, immediately issued a uh, clarification that this was a total falsehood, a complete fabrication, and uh, the Pakistanis understood, but talk about dangerous games. And was Israel successful in identifying who was conducting those attacks? Like, are we speaking about sp state-sponsored, you know, like hackers or, or some terrorist organization or some criminals that were doing this for money or just some hacktivists that they had ideology, so they were doing this, you know, because of ideology? I think these, I think these were uh, state-based attacks. And uh, it's usually harder, of course, to attribute uh, state-based attacks because they're usually more sophisticated than those that you see from the non-state actors and the activist groups, but some of them are pretty uh, sophisticated as well. Let's speak a little bit about the Israel cybersecurity when it comes to infrastructure and policy. So how has Israel fortified its cybersecurity framework in response to these threats, what has been done? Well, the National Cyber Directorate is responsible for all interest, national infrastructure, or what's defined as critical national infrastructure. Uh, so it's uh, power plants, the electric system, it's the water system, it's the transportation systems, now today the health system. Uh, one exception to the critical infrastructure is that the Shin Bet continues to be responsible for the communication system. These organizations are, first of all, under particular regulation, particularly stringent regulation, as they have to live up to very high uh, levels of cybersecurity. But they are also provided by unique defensive packages by the National Cyber Directorate or by the Shin Bet. Uh, there are a whole variety, uh, numerically far a far greater number, of secondary organizations. They're not formally defined as critical national infrastructure, but they're also very important. They're also provided with a better package, uh, better than what the average company gets. Um, and I don't want to get into any details beyond that because we're getting into sensitive areas here. Because uh, obviously, the critical infrastructure is the primary target and we know that the water system was attacked i mentioned that the electric system is actually there are hundreds of thousands of attacks every day most of them are easily uh, deflected but occasionally there are more sophisticated ones and there have been a number of attacks against the communication system as well when we speak about cybersecurity, you know, our viewers and students, they watch movies, YouTube documentaries, and mostly they see IDF, you know, some Mossad people, 
agents and, and that sort of sector. But what is the role of private companies in helping Israel with the cyber security, cyber threats? Well, one of the fundamental tenets of Israel's cyber strategy, the civil cyber strategy, and I think this is true of other countries as well. Look, the cyber realm is immense. In the end, it's just about every one of us. Today, most of humanity is linked up to the cyber world. So we're, most of us have home computers and we have cell phones. And each one of those devices makes our lives much easier and um, the more sophisticated world. But each one of them is a potential target. Now, no country's um, cyber defense organizations can defend every single citizen, and they can't even develop, uh, defend all of the organizations in the country. I'm using the term organization because it can be a commercial organization or a public. There are, I don't know, in Israel, there are probably tens of thousands of them, and in bigger countries, far more. So that the basic idea is that except for the few critical national infrastructure organizations and a few others, what the National Cyber Directorate does is it provides, uh, first of all, there are regulations, but it provides um, more general guidelines for what just the average organization should do. Actually, it divides, it says, well, if you're, if you perceive your vulnerability to be level A, then you should do X. And if you perceive it to be a, a lower level B, then you should do Y. And if you think it's low, then you can make do with doing Z. So they have guidelines for organizations and they have more general guidelines for the uh, average uh, home or small business user. And so businesses, the organizations have a critical role in the strategy, in the concept. Pretty much every public company today must have a cyber director in the, uh, a cyber director in their board, and they must have a cyber official um, to manage cybersecurity day to day. You know, in Europe or European Union, we were having those issues with you know chinese companies coming to provide you know parts of elements of critical telecommunication systems you know what's your stance on having let's say chinese technology maybe some indian technology in israel or does israel have an official policy about this china is a rising power and pretty much everyone in the world wants to have as close a relationship as they can. It's hard not to want that kind of a relationship with China today and increasingly with India as well. India is a close friend of Israel, so there's no problem there. Israel has had a very close commercial, an increasingly close commercial relationship with uh, China for the last 20 years. Uh, not military. It, that was developing in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the U.S. forced Israel to put an end to that. And there was a very, very close, uh, really burgeoning relationship in the area, in the cyber area, until a couple of years ago. And then the U.S. again put a great deal of pressure on Israel. And it took a little bit of time. And then Israel started understanding that this wasn't a case of the U.S. just pressing Israel for maybe American considerations, 
but that the U.S. was actually right. There are all, all sorts of dangers involved. And so Israel has clamped down uh, on its own in terms of where it allows China to invest it. China viewed Israel as basically an open, <laughs> I have to step back a second time. Israel, remarkably, uh, a country of nine and a half million people, has been widely considered uh, until recently, the, let's say, the second greatest center of high tech in the world. And maybe China has now pushed us to, to the third place. When the U.S. clamped down on its, its cyber or its high tech, uh, generally its high tech relations with China, the Chinese increasingly turned to Israel, they thought, as an alternative to the U.S. And then, as I was saying, Israel started becoming aware of the dangers on its own. The U.S. was pressing for it. And so Israel has cut back in, in recent years. There's still a pretty good relationship. Israel has also decided now, there's no official policy, but in effect, uh, to keep uh, China out of its uh, 5G systems and uh, various other ones. Various other ways. Let's talk a little bit about the international cooperation in uh, cybersecurity issues. So, what is the official DNA of the Israeli cooperation with the world? Because we have like two camps. The first one is claiming that Israel is quite close country based on you know few arguments and the second camp is claiming that Israel is very liberal very open country which welcomes good solutions so how this reflects into international cooperation in the cybersecurity area with the counterparts in the world well i don't know anyone who knows israel who thinks that it's a closed country uh, mm -hmm. in the civil area i think israel is one of the most open countries in the world sometimes maybe even a bit too much um, so again, another basic principle of the national cyber strategy says that cyber is an international, it's a global threat. No one country can deal with it on its own. It's, it can come from the whole world. And so one has to pool capabilities and international cooperation is critical to that. And so the National Cyber Directorate uh, cooperates. Uh, they have formal agreements with uh, over 100 countries today around the world, mm -hmm. uh, countries that Israel does not have formal diplomatic relations with. Uh, a number of, at this point, a fairly large number of Arab countries. And of course, all of the, the Western countries, uh, many third world countries. The US, as in every other area, is Israel's number one partner in cyber. But very interestingly, uh, the United Arab Emirates is also one of the top ones, uh, Morocco also. Yes, that's... So it's a very broad cooperation. And by the way, the IDF and the intelligence agencies uh, take the same basic approach in, in their realms, which is cooperate to the extent that they believe they can without exposing things that they don't want to expose because you have to pool resources because no one country can go it alone. How is the interest of from coming from the students or experts in Israel to join this area, cybersecurity? Because in Europe, for instance, we have shortage of people. So we have positions available, but no people to get to those positions. So how is it in Israel? Well, I think uh, in some ways it's similar. There is a shortage. There's actually a big shortage on the other hand, not because people aren't interested, it's a question of people with suitable skills. 
Um, Israel is a high-tech, uh, crazy country, and that's true, particularly true in the in the cyber area. Uh, the number of people uh, registering for the various engineering courses in the universities has skyrocketed in recent years, and many of them, of course, want to get into the into cyber and related areas. Every kid in Israel, it's a national sport, wants to, to establish his or her own, or her own uh, startup when they get out of college. It, it, there's a great deal of interest. That's not the problem. The problem is that cyber requires, the good stuff, the sophisticated cyber, requires really sophisticated capabilities, and there are a limited number of people who, who have it. Can we speak about the economic implications of the cyber security in Israel? What's your stance? What challenges do you face? Well, I mean, there, there's a an opportunity and a threat here. The opportunity is, is enormous. Uh, cyber has become one of the primary drivers of the Israeli economy. Uh, High tech as a whole is. And... Um, the numbers are large by global standards. Israel is uh, the number one or the number two um, focus of uh, international investment in cybersecurity. At least it was until a few months ago. Uh, so there's that. There's also the danger, which is like uh, everyone, Israel is the subject of uh, cyber crime and it's the subject of uh, commercially based um, uh, state attacks. Uh, the motivation there isn't uh, the commercial one, but they go through the commercial route. And in the last few years, we have seen dozens of successful attacks against Israeli companies. I mentioned the one about the insurance company before, because that was particularly sensitive because of what they leaked. Uh, there have been a couple of other sensitive ones like that. And then there have just been lots of them, especially ransomware in the last couple of years, where they've extorted significant uh, ransom. And companies like in other countries have preferred to pay and be done with it rather than stand up to it. Cyber threats are connected to geopolitics. So we can open this chapter. And I am interested in how the geopolitical shift impact that sort of cyber security in Israel? Because we know about some initiatives, for instance, the Abraham Accords. You know, Israel is, is, is very active in diplomacy in the Middle East and also outside of the Middle East. So do you see any effects on or in this area of cyber security? Well, I would say, first of all, if we're talking the geopolitical situation, then one of the two things that first got Israel involved in cyber was the understanding that there was a major emerging threat in this area. And Israel was one of the first countries back in the 90s to, to recognize it. Um, so there was a threat. And then there's been an opportunity. One of the way, one of the things that led to the Abraham Accords was the fact that uh, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, I think unofficially a number of other Arab countries. Uh, one of the reasons that brought them to normalize relations uh, with Israel formally in the case of the, the previous three and others informally 
was that they wanted access to Israeli cyber and high-tech technology. And it came to be known in Israel as cyber diplomacy. Uh, it became a big source of influence. Unfortunately, that's been hurt a little bit in the last couple of years, but um, yeah, it's still an important thing. I said cyber cooperation agreements with more countries than Israel has diplomatic relations with. So cyber things have affected it. Um, the conflict, the ongoing conflict with Iran affects it. On the more positive side, it's a good source of cooperation, uh, further cooperation with some of Israel's close allies, the, the US, the UK, other European countries. Can you elaborate a little bit on Iran capabilities? You know, because I know that Israel is very good in identifying, you know, threats, opportunities, as exactly as you said, you know. So, for instance, when we take last, let's say, couple of years, Iran capabilities are going up, are stable, or are declining? Well, I think their capabilities are going up. Um, they are training lots and lots of people. They're putting a lot of money into it. Most of the attacks that they've launched have still not been sophisticated. Uh, I would say that there is something of a gap between the capabilities that they should have considering the efforts that they've put into it in the last decade and what we see at least. Now, of course, we don't see everything. It's not all out in the public domain, especially in what's happening in the military area. But in the civil area, most of the attacks haven't been very sophisticated. Um, most of it has actually been against the low-hanging fruit. Now, is that just because it's a greater target of opportunity, it's easier to do it, uh, or it's because they understand that they don't have the capability to attack the more important targets? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. Maybe they're saving their more sophisticated capabilities for the right time, so to speak. Uh, overall, I mean, they're way ahead of where they were a decade ago, but everybody else is improving also. So I'd say they've closed the gap somewhat, but not yet. Right. And what's about China? Because in the Western Europe, um, United States, we always read about Chinese threat. You know, lately, Microsoft had some issues with Chinese, you know, algorithm and cloud systems. So is China also very active in attacking Israel or you don't see that? There isn't a great deal of information about China in the public domain. So, I mean, if you look, for example, in the book, you'll find just a few examples of all we, that's all we know of. When you mentioned the book, the second part of the interview is about your book which uh, I think it's very important to talk about because, for instance, last year I was teaching uh, cybersecurity as a part of the counterterrorism module for my students. And I mentioned, you know, basic things like Stuxnet and Unit 8200 and, you know, Operation Orchard and, and stuff like that, you know. And for many students, it was fascinating to read about those stories. And they asked me, what is the most comprehensive material about the Israeli cybersecurity slash cyber threats, you know, as, as defense? 
and uh, I mentioned your name, but at that time the book wasn't published, but now it is published. So who or what inspired you to, to write this book? Because it's pretty comprehensive material. Uh, two things. One was my previous book, which came out in 2018, but I guess I'd finished it about a year earlier. So, um, there was a very brief sub chapter on cyber, maybe three pages. And it occurred to me that this is a new area, or at least for me at the time, it was a new area about which I knew nothing. Uh, it sounded interesting and it sounded a little bit scary. <laughs> and so I made a note for myself that I have to learn something about this. And the other thing that led me to it, or maybe I should say pushed me into it, uh, was my two co-authors um, who uh, were initially more uh, avid about this than I was. Once I got into it, uh, I found it very interesting also. As a, as a professor, and this is also interesting for my students, how did you deal with the theory of international relations? Or, you know, when you write a book, you try to get a stance, like I'm looking at this issue from constructivism point of view or realist, or, you know, so how was it in your case? Well, first of all, for your students, I can say that I blew it big time initially when writing this book in the sense that whenever I meet with my students about term papers, about theses, the first thing I say is get your analytical framework and your theory right, then everything else will flow from that. And then Freyla goes and writes an entire book and submits it. And the biggest comment I get back from the reviewers is, it's a purely descriptive book. There's no analytical framework. And I read that and I, <laughs> my heart sank because I thought that I was done with the book. It was the final submission. And I realized that they were 100% right. By the way, this will never happen to me again in any area. I then spent a year rewriting and recouching everything in terms of the analytical framework. And we used uh, two areas, which was realism and constructivism. The realist argument being that Israel faced both a threat and an opportunity from cyber in both the civil and military uh, realms. In other words, there was a military threat, there was a military opportunity, because this Israel's good at high-tech kind of stuff. There was an economic threat, there was an economic opportunity. Uh, so that was the realist argument. And then constructivism for us was an intervening variable. You know, it explains why of the different options available to Israel at the time, the different responses, it chose to go the way that it did, uh, choosing a technological uh, response. So, yeah, so theory played, uh, in the end, played an important role in the book. Anyway, which chapter was the most challenging to write or most difficult to write from that book? Or you spent the most time on, on it? The most time. Um, well, just time-wise, it was uh, the Iranian threat because there was so much uh, material to, to cull through and uh, put it in some sort of logical order. Uh, so I think that in terms of time, that was it. Maybe the most 
I don't know, there, were, I, there were a couple of really interesting ones. Uh, the military dimension was particularly interesting. The chapter that deals with really with ecos, Israel's cyber ecosystem and why it why cyber works so much for Israel that was particularly interesting and of course it felt particularly good because it's an area where I think the, the, the story is really remarkable. What is the academic freedom when you write books about such a sensitive topic in Israel? I know that you are a high-ranked professor and you were advisor, so you have some you know, inside information. But for instance, for people like me, who didn't serve in Israeli high-ranked positions, you know, how is that? Okay, in Israel, like in every democracy that I know of, if you're a former government official in the sensitive areas, you obviously have to submit the manuscript for a security clearance. Uh, this is my third book, of which uh, two of the three were potentially uh, sensitive for security reasons. Now, partly you have to know how to write things in a way that will not uh, set off any alarm. Um, for example, if you can find public confirmation of something that you want to say, then you can usually say it. If it, you can't say something which is based just on your own inside information. Now, by the way, in this case, in the cyber book, I've been out of government for 17 years now. So, and I had never worked on cyber when I was in the government. So I mean, even if I had actually known something from my service, it would have been irrelevant at this point anyway. But I mean, so that also, but probably played a little bit uh, in my favor. They, the security people read every word. I mean, it's remarkable how careful they are. And they check your footnotes. They found my mistakes for me. I was very grateful to them. Um, and they challenged a few things. Um, I, I think out of the entire book, and it's a total of sentences that were, there was one paragraph that they asked me to rewrite, uh, and then here and there a word. So that, that was it. Uh, so I also, to be frank, I practiced a little bit of self-censorship because people, partly because of my own background, people, I interviewed over 30 uh, former officials, mostly mostly former, just a couple of serving. Um, and some of them knew me, and if they didn't, they knew my background. I, I felt people spoke uh, rather openly. so. I was very careful with, with the information that they gave me. I think in the end, the impact of the security clearance process was infinitesimal. But look, that is a problem. Um, when you're dealing with topics like this, not everything is out there or very much is not out there in the public domain. That's a problem, isn't it? Uh, it's something that I think pretty much all IR uh, researchers run into at some point and to some extent. If you want to write about these kinds of topics, then you have to know there are, there are limitations to what you're going to be able to do and, and say. And I think it's art of writing to get those limitations right. So <laughs> you basically reveal more than you promise at the beginning. So that's, that's also very interesting. In your book, you speak about defensive and offensive cyber policies. This might be quite blurred, so can you please explain for our students and international audience what does it mean to have defensive and offensive cyber policy? 
Well, and like in other areas, you're defending, you're protecting yourself against cyber attack and offenses attacking the other side. Um, Israel is considered to be particularly good in both areas in cyber. That, that's the difference here. Because I think it's quite important to, to stress, you know, that cybersecurity doesn't mean only to repair the code or computers or infrastructure after, but have some, you know, set of the solutions which might be deployed as a counter, you know, operation. So I think therefore I ask, you know, about defense and offense policies, because I think it's quite important to, when someone is studying cybersecurity, to have that sort of balanced point of view between defense and offense. Also, there is the civil cyber strategy and the military cyber strategy. So could you shed some light on that in Israel? Okay, first of all, we don't know a great deal about the military strategy. There are various, uh, let's say, uh, brief statements over the years. Um, some senior officer said X and another one said Y. And you can put together lots of different little pieces and create something of a whole out of that. There was some mention, the IDF published a formal military strategy in 2015 and again in 2018, and they mentioned cyber there not very extensively, but you can get a couple of ideas from there. And um, there have been lots of articles about it, so each one adds another sentence or so or more of, of value. Uh, and you try and put it, uh, or in this case, into uh, our general understanding of how Israel does things in the military realm. And we put together, I would say, a, a partial picture. They are the most complete one that there is uh, today. In the civil area, Israel actually published a formal national civil cyber strategy. It's interesting, by the way, that this is one of the not one of the, I think it's the only area, I'm talking about the civil defense strategy, but even civil cyber has strong defense or security related aspects to it. So it's the only defense area that I would say, semi-defense area where Israel has published a formal national cyber strategy. Most of it is straight civilian. Um, and again, it was one of the first countries to do so. And there are other countries that uh, use the Israeli strategy as a model for their own. It came out in, the public version came out in 2017. It was basically uh, codifying what had been the practice over the previous, um, let's say seven years when the, uh, the primary cabinet decisions had been made. I don't know how you, but when I read a book, I got answers to what I want, and then I have more questions about what I don't want, don't know. So my question is, after publishing this book in 2023, do you have any topic about to write a new book about or to research? I do. Um... I intend to start it pretty soon. It's going to be a book on the U.S.-Israeli military and strategic relationship, which has been noted in thousands of newspaper articles and here and there. Um, 
and not actually very, very few journal articles, a little bit, and there have been mentions in books. I think this is just about the only area in the U.S.-Israeli relationship that has not been covered uh, rather extensively by uh, academic research to date, and it's an area that I've always been particularly interested in, so that will be the next project. The last question for today's interview what do you what do you think or how would you evaluate the academic community in Israel researching cyber security? Well, first of all, um, every university in Israel today has a cyber security program. That was not the case uh, less than a decade ago, uh, probably seven years ago. So um, and cybersecurity research institutes, they also have, uh, cybersecurity educational programs at the undergraduate and the graduate level. So a great deal is being done in the academic area. There's also a very close relationship between uh, the academy in Israel and uh, the cyber ecosystem, the civil cyber ecosystem, and uh, with the IDF. Uh, remember, pretty much everybody in Israel has served in the, the IDF, and uh, many continue to do reserve duty for years. So, it, 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 Israel is more open to that kind of relationship than you have in most other Western democracies. I think there's more to be done, uh, especially in basic academic research, which the government used to fund a great deal. And they're funding much, much less today. Uh, Israel used to be, I think, number one in the world in that uh, area, and we're way down today. Israel is still very, very high in uh, cyber R&D, maybe still number one or number two in the world. But most of it is coming from the multinational corporations that have uh, a couple of hundred uh, R&D centers in Israel today, not from the government. And that's something that has to be redressed, uh, to my way of thinking. Chuck, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts, you know, excellent review of the Israeli cybersecurity and uh, your remarks about the cyber threats. I wish you good luck in your research. We expect more books, more articles. We will follow your work. And I also wish you lots of energy because it's a very sensitive topic to research, very difficult topic, but very, very important, especially in nowadays when we face a hybrid war and conflicts all over the world. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and thank you very much for all the warm words and continue your own good deeds. See you next time. Bye-bye.